0: Hey, daters. Are you sick of small talk and no date being planned? Well, I'm excited to introduce you to First Rounds On Me, a revolutionary dating app designed for modern singles who are fed up with the frustrations of today's dating scene. The app is all about actually helping you plan dates and build genuine connections. How so? Well, the only way you match with someone is by planning a date. Send a date, a time, and a location, and then the rest is up to you. Ready to go on real dates? You can get one free month of their premium subscription with code DOCTOR, D-O-C-T-O-R. Download First Rounds on Me using the link in the show notes and start building meaningful connections offline. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, You've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. Welcome to a very special episode with a truly incredible guest, Resmaa Manikam. Resma is a healer, a longtime therapist and a licensed clinical social worker who specializes in the healing of racialized trauma. He's also the founder of the Cultural Somatics Institute. He's a cultural trauma navigator and a communal provocateur and coach. Resma is best known as the author of the New York Times bestseller, My Grandmother's Hands: Racialized Trauma and the Pathway to Mending Our Hearts and Bodies. And as the originator and key advocate of somatic abolitionism, an embodied anti racist practice of living and culture building. This April, Resma's new book is out in the world. It is called The Quaking of America An Embodied Guide to Navigating Our Nation's Upheaval and Racial Reckoning. And in this book, Resma surveys the deteriorating political climate in the U.S. and presents an urgent call for action to protect ourselves and our country. I absolutely loved speaking with Resma about his new book, as well as going back to the heart of his work in my grandmother's hands. As you will hear, we cover a great deal of ground in this conversation. You're going to hear both of us use the language that Rezma uses in his teaching as we name the different experiences that white bodies and bodies of culture have in our society. And through this conversation, you'll understand why that language choice matters. So whether you live in a white body or a body of culture, I guarantee that you are going to feel something as you listen to this conversation. Just notice, pause, breathe, and come back. Resma's ideas and frameworks about collective trauma and collective healing are urgent and vital, and I am grateful that we can learn from him. As you'll hear in our discussion, Resma has a way of naming the tender spots and the pain points in cultural moments with precision and clarity. This conversation has stayed with me in a deep way, and I know that it will for you as well. Resma, thank you for being here with me today.
1: Thank you. I've been looking forward to this.
0: Oh, God. I have such deep respect for your work and I'm so glad to have this chance to have this conversation with you. You are a gifted teacher and you are so devoted to helping all of us understand racism as an embodied experience. All of us, white bodied folks and bodies of culture. I'm also so excited to celebrate with you the launch of your new book. So we've got a lot of ground to cover. Okay, so when I've got a guest expert in this space, I love to start off with this relational self-awareness question. So Resma, what is a growing edge that you're currently working on in one of your important relationships? And what has it been teaching you lately?
1: So the thing that comes to mind right now is saying no and learning how to nap and take more rest breaks and protecting that time one of the things that happens is I end up setting things up for me to have rest time. And then there's always this kind of, well, I could just do this over here and I could tweak that over there. And what I'm finding is those little things that I tweak aren't enough rest. It's, It's not enough rest for me. And it's not enough time for rejuvenation. When you're working with Embodied stuff, and especially something with the charge of race, you know, the four or 500 year charge of race in bodies like mine and black bodies, we're taught that any type of anything that shows up that is about constriction, we've been kind of conditioned around override it, don't pay any attention to it, get through it, give yourself up in ways that support other people. And I'm learning my edge right now is that. I can't keep doing it in that way anymore. If I'm going to be here, you know, for at least the next 30 years, I'm not going to be able to keep doing what I'm doing right now. And so that's my edge right now.
0: I can relate to parts of it, certainly Mm -hmm. around how much this is your passion and your purpose and your gift and the need is strong, and what i'm hearing you also say is that there's a way in which the struggle with rest reflects mm-hmm. the intergenerational mm-hmm. trauma right. that you carry all the way down to yourselves.
1: Absolutely. People can watch me do that and it can look like dedication. Yeah. but it's actually weathering me. And i you know i've you know learned this these pieces and gotten these pieces from you know what my people How they've been constructed around what to lean into and what to recoil from. Slowing down and just when the urgency shows up, not automatically reflexively responding to it Mm -hmm. and allowing myself to contend with the urgency as opposed to trying to get to find ways around it or finding ways to mitigate it. I'm learning how to just sit with the uncomfortableness of laying in the bed and not immediately rolling my feet over. And then dealing with all of the fraudulent stuff that comes up with it, dealing with all of the imposter stuff that comes up with it, and not looking to try and find the answer so I don't feel like an imposter, like not automatically going for answers. And so it's been coming up more now that my new book is starting to ramp up. You know, there's so many more demands and I'm so used to just like doing it all myself. But I am finding that I can't. I don't have as much room as I used to to do it all myself anymore.
0: Yeah, it feels paradoxical that the rest is the discomfort. But that's exactly right. that's what I'm hearing
1: you say. Exactly that the rest
0: right. is when you can feel the bubbling yeah. up.
1: Yeah, that's when the quaking happens.
0: The rest is pushing back, right? The rest mm-hmm. is one of the ways that you are pushing back against. Conditioning against the ways in which white body supremacy has. That's an aspect of white body supremacy, right? Is produce, push, worth, tied to, production. Yeah.
1: Two primary facets of white body supremacy is urgency and stuckness at the same time. Okay. The urgency and the stuckness has been interwoven in through every systemic and structural and philosophical conditioning that we have. That's part of the charge that I'm talking about. Yeah, For Black people in general, but specifically for Black women, you know, one of the things that I've been saying a lot lately to Black women is that the Black woman's body is where America has constructed the place where it does all of its dirt. So the Black woman's growth edge is not doing things. And I've picked up a lot of that stuff from people that I love, Black women that I love, my wife, my mother, friends, aunties and everything that this idea of not doing is so untenable for a lot of Black Mm -hmm. bodies, Um, whether that body is non-binary, whether it's male, whether it's female, whether it's whatever, that that urgency really does require a different container building than the idea of just self-love or self-care. That's not going to get at that. Mm -hmm.
0: I suspect that there are some folks in the reimagining love community who will be introduced to your work for the first time in this conversation that we're having. So can we back up a bit and start with some definitions and some frames?
1: Mm Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: The heart of your work is understanding and healing racism through the body, this bottom up approach that is antithetical really to 30 years of diversity and inclusion work that has been very much about top down, learn these bullet points, think differently, find your blind spots.
1: Right. Implicit bias, you know. Um, you know, all of these, all celebrate
0: the, the holidays, learn the holidays,
1: celebrate the holidays. Let's do, yeah, let's, let's do a potluck. Let's have courageous conversations. And let me say this. Don't nobody send us an email about resmus talking about courageous conversations. Just, <laughs> I'm just talking about the apparatus of diversity. Yep. So one of the things that I'm very clear about sibling is this piece around what I do is somatic abolitionism, meaning that one of my primary pieces is how do we begin, how do I usher in a living embodied anti-racist culture building around structural and philosophical, a different structure and philosophy? Yep. One of the things that happens is that when you're doing somatic abolitionism or anti-racism work and culture building, you have to be very clear that that's not the same thing as DEI work. The DEI work at its root is a entity that was constructed so that white bodies did not run out the room screaming when the when introduction of race was bought in, right? And So what ends up happening is, is that the centering of DEI is centered around white comfort, right? Is let me teach you these cognitive pieces because I know as a collective, white bodies don't have any racial uh, uh, efficacy or agility collectively when it comes to race. None. Absolutely none. I used to, you know, when I first started doing this work, I used to do this thing where I said, well, you know, they, they have some. Absolutely none.
0: <laughs> you used to give us a little, now you give us Yeah. None. Yeah, no, yeah. it's none. It's none.
1: It's, I, it's they, none. Collectively, there is sure. no efficacy sure. or agility when it comes to race because you haven't had to. That's right. So for me, I'm very clear that the work that I do is around ushering in a new culture, not giving tips. One of the things that I always talk about when I say DEI is that when you say diversity, if you don't define diverse from what, then it will end up being Ken Sierra, Tuesday, collard green, Wednesday, fried bread, Thursday. It'll end up being this kind of cursory understanding of what we mean by race and racism. When I get into a place where I, I'm starting to stop saying racism, okay. that concept, I believe, has been so brutalized and so marginalized that now everybody puts their own understanding of it in there and it doesn't have the weight that it needs to have. It's one of the reasons why I've been saying now white body supremacy and I'm just staying on that. So racism means being bad to somebody. Or Racism means not being nice. Or Racism means this, that, and the other. And I want people to understand, no, when I talk about racism, I'm talking about the supreme standard by which the white body deems and has deemed itself the supreme standard by which all bodies, humanity shall be measured structurally and philosophically. If you don't understand that, everything else about these structures will confuse you. If you don't understand that when you watch Ukrainian soldiers pull Black African people off of buses and trains. You will be confused about that. Mm -hmm. And so for me, this idea of white body supremacy and DEI, like like when you say diversity, you have to start with the premise first. And then what you're saying is I'm diversifying from that premise. But if you never say what the premise is, then all of a sudden you have discussions in DEI where People are talking about how racist black people are or how Mm -hmm. racist, you know, uh, brown people. That's a fundamental misunderstanding of the term race and racism. This idea that being nice, not nice, or being kind or not kind, that is what determines whether or not something is racist. It is not a structural understanding, it is not a philosophical understanding. And it leaves too much malleability when we're talking about the ravages of white body supremacy and the whole contextual setup. So that's, so that's what I, I know I just said a lot, but
0: it's important and it's central because you're right that that is what ends up happening then when DEI work by default centers white comfort what you're giving white people is a set of things that if you say these things and not these things, then you've done, you've checked your box and you're okay. And when you move us to white body supremacy, you are insisting that we look at systems that are bigger than any any individual, exactly. that date back generations, and that are about, as you say, a species question. We're talking about degrees of Humanity. When we're talking about that, we are moving out of white comfort. Exactly. We are, you know, we are getting into the places that white bodies will do just about anything to avoid. Yeah.
1: The whole construction of DEI was done so we could talk about race without talking about race. Here's, here, let me say enough. So people are using the term intersectionality in ways that Kimberly Crenshaw never intended for them to be. Remember, when she came up with the idea of intersectionality, it was the intersection of race and gender, Mm -hmm. right? And what you have people doing now, you can go through literal DEI trainings, and you mention race one time. That's by design, because many of these like big Fortune 500 or Fortune 200 organizations don't have any tolerance for race. So what they want to do is that they want to make the ter- they want to make race opaque. They want to make it so you can't really. Gr- I, and I'm talking operationally. I'm not talking about how it's tied to your mission and your vision and your. <laughs> I'm mm-hmm. not talking mm-hmm. about that. I'm talking about operationally that race has. And I said this earlier. Race has a four to five hundred year old charge to it. So the moment you begin to broach the idea of race, the charge comes into the room. Yeah, And if you haven't built a container or conditioning in the bodies that are coming into the room, that charge will crack people and then also make give white people escape hatches so they don't have to continue. That's built into the structure. White bodies, when it comes to race, they're willing to talk about almost anything else but race. And they're really not interested in talking about race amongst each other. They're more than willing to have the black guru come in or the indigenous guru come in or somebody else uh, that they can blow all of that charge through rather than having white people begin to work on these pieces with each other's bodies, not through my body, but with each other. And that's the last thing white bodies are wanting to do collectively with each other.
0: Do you feel like you're at a crossroads in your love life? Maybe you are sick of modern dating or wondering if the person that you're with is your person. Whatever your situation, I have the perfect podcast for you. Dateable. Dateable is your insider's look into modern dating hosted by Julie Kraftchick and Yue Shu. Julie and Yue bring a sense of humor Wherever you start, this podcast is going to help you feel inspired to date differently and create a love life that works for you. Subscribe to Dateable wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) It's why in your trainings, your trainings are for bodies of culture. That's right. Or your trainings are for white bodies.
1: Exactly right. Because that charge, and most DEI people don't understand charge. They don't understand the charge and the volume of race. When that starts showing up in the room, they start doing things like, well, can we use different types of statements? It's all right if you have one position. It's a matter of opinion. And it's this, I mean, they start creating even more ways to move around it because they themselves can't hold the charge, Sure, right? They themselves haven't been tempered and conditioned to hold it. When that charge shows up in the room, they start giving tips, tools, and ideas and strategies because they can't hold it.
0: Sure, because holding the charge is about the somatic work, right? It's about what you call your six—the six intelligences, right? The vim, the vimbas. Is that how you say? It? That's right.
1: I've actually, you know, it's funny. I'm I'm laying this to you right now, but I've actually added. It's actually seven now. It's actually seven intelligences, mm. right? So the vim. The, so now it's vimbasi. Okay. So, um, which is a much more African sounding word. I love it. That's yeah. right. right. Okay. Yeah.
0: okay. Yeah.
1: And so it is a, so vibes and vibrations, images, thoughts, ideas, dreams, and cognitions is the next one. So VI, meaning making is the third, right? Behavior and urges, then affect and emotionality. Then sensate and sensations. And then the eye is imagination. These are all intelligences. Intelligences are literally tied to creation itself, right? An emergence. A lot of these structures are predicated on only one intelligence, and that's cognition. And when that has taken up so much room, it crowds out the expression and the honing and the cultivation of the others, right? And so my work is really in an embodied sense, how do we begin to condition and temper ourselves to be able to work with vibes and vibrations? Like as a Black body, I've had to understand the vibes and vibrations of race before I even came on the planet because my mama had to understand it. My daddy had to understand it. When you walk into some place or you're involved with something and something happens, you have to suss out what is the vibe and vibration here? My body is literally a container that is both an amplifier and a receiver. Okay. What is the vibratory piece that I'm picking up on? Even if I can't articulate it, do I give my body permission to go, I don't know exactly what that is, but I know it's something. And that is an intelligence that's showing up in this mm-hmm. moment, right? The same thing for images, thoughts, ideas, and dreams. Like, what's the texture of it? What is the volume of it? How do I discern the difference between in one second something meaning something in one second and in an exact next second meaning something else, mm-hmm. right? How do I condition myself? specifically around race, to be able to contend with that. And so a lot of my work is how do you work with the Vimbasi over and over and over again, not so that you get the right answer, so that you cultivate these pieces so something new can emerge. Trauma and racialized trauma is a thwarting energy. It thwarts the emergence of that which we already have available to us. It literally thwarts it. Part of the work of the conditioning and tempering is to have this kind of thing going back and forth, this movement going back and forth. So over time, enough room is available so that thing that has been thwarted starts to emerge forth. Mm -hmm. And so that's why when I'm talking about race and racism and when I'm talking about white body supremacy, I'm literally talking about the energies that are thwarted, that are resourced, that are constricted. And how can we tell the difference between those? things? Mm
0: -hmm. And honor them, right? Because when you're saying that cognition has been pulled out as the only intelligence, then I mean, that feels very sort of historically white. I'm thinking about the history of our field of psychotherapy, right? Psychotherapy has valued cognition That's over right. just about everything else. I mean, this whole generate this this emergence of somatic practices within our field of psychotherapy right. is new and I don't right. would not be here if the field was still dominated by white men primarily, right? This is sort of work that has been that reflects a sort of reclamation and an honoring of lots and lots and lots of ways of knowing and refusing to hold up one way of knowing above other ways of knowing.
1: And not only refusing to upholding it, but a leaning into practicing with it and playing with it and excavating it and studying it and working with it body to body. I've worked with somatic people who talk about the somatic pieces but the vibe of the way that they work with it is all cognition. Okay. Even in the somatic fields, you're having people genuflect to cognition, hmm. right? <laughs> it's, it's, it, it, and that's how this stuff gets, especially in the racial context. That's how whiteness ends up getting recentered. Is that we end up thinking we're doing all of this beautiful work, but we're actually using the same tools, right? that have created this bottleneck in the first place.
0: You are crystal clear in your first book, My Grandmother's Hands, that this is a book where you don't get to just read and then just kind of skip right. the shadow box of the practice, right? This That's, is right. A, <laughs>
1: That's right.
0: This is a book that that need that because it's all, and, and you say all the time about getting your reps in. This is about practices. That's right. Practices that as you're talking about kind of, it's not a one and done of, of, oh, I'm now going to listen to my body. It's a practice of learning how to listen to our bodies.
1: That's exactly right. You don't read my books. You do my books. Mm -hmm. And that's purposeful because I know the move. Like, I can't tell you how many somatic practitioners have come up to me and said, Resma, I love what you're doing. I've read my grandmother's hands. I love, you know, I've read, either they say, I've read my grandmother's hands in a weekend. And when, when whenever anybody says that to me, I go. Yeah.
0: <laughs> They're telling on themselves. <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's like it's like that. I was like, "There's no way." I, I tell people it takes an average nine to thirteen months to read my book the first time. Mm-hmm. I'm still reading my book. There are pieces where I pick it up and read, it and I go, "Ooh, I wrote that."
0: That's okay. <laughs> I, forgot. I forgot. I forgot. That was, even
1: good. Say, yeah, that was that's, that's good shit right there. I was like, <laughs> you know? Because this is an emergent experience. This is not a I got the answer experience. This is really about can I do these reps and then notice that something is shifting or changing from the first time I went through it and now the fourth time I went, there's something, I'm different, yeah. I'm this. I have more capacity, I have more room. This constriction is still there or that. This is why I say that, you know, when white bodies come up to me, I, I've had white bodies come up to me and say stuff like, "Um, Rosemary, you say in the book, it's going to take eight to nine generations before white people know what the hell is going on with race. You know, I don't, I'm not quite sure that that's true. And I, I look at them like they're out of their minds. I mean, it. it's because, <laughs> because I'm like, you're telling me that you're not really conditioned to the environment in a way that will allow you to actually see what it is that I'm seeing. When I say eight to nine uh, generations, I mean that. I mean that white bodies have not even gotten to a place to where they can actually work with the charge. But you're sitting here telling me from based on your one cursory understanding of the book that you believe it can happen quicker. When I'm sitting here saying the conditioning that white bodies have had in this structure has been at least eight to nine generations. So you're saying that you believe it won't take that long based on what? Like mm-hmm. <laughs> based on their goodwill, yeah. based on their kindness or their niceness. Well, that's inadequate. Sure. Yeah.
0: Guilt, based on the guilt, right? Based on that, this feels so bad, I can't even stand can't what even my stand ancest- ancestors have done. And I mm-hmm. want it to be different.
1: And that I'm advantaged by. It's not just what they've done. Uh, 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 uh. It's that they have done that. Mm-hmm. And I'm advantaged by that thing that they've done. In ways that other people are not advantaged by. They created racial covenants. My people were not advantaged by white racial covenants. Mm-hmm. The black bodies who who fought in every war, right, were not advantaged in the same way by access to money and capital and loans. They weren't advantaged by that. They weren't advantaged by the GI Bill. They weren't advantaged by the uh, by the by the redlining. White bodies were, mm-hmm. right. And so it is not just that your ancestors did this. It is that your ancestors did it. You're advantaged by it. This is why I don't say that white people, you know, only deal with white privilege. I say that white people is not, operationally, white privilege is not enough. And notice when you say white privilege, people nod, but they go, they're to their head. What I say is not the white privilege only that you should be paying attention to is also the white advantage operationally in a society that's constructed under white body being the human standard. It is not just a privilege to be white. It is a literal advantage Mm -hmm. to be white in a structure like that. It was an advantage for the white people, whether they were Ukrainian or not to be in a white body, Right. That yes. was an advantage. It was it's an advantage. Right. It's not a privilege. It's not a privilege. It's mm-hmm. an, it, it, is a, it, is, it is an advantage to be the icon for humanness in the middle of a war zone. Yes. When you're trying to get up in my work, I'm really trying to give people different ways of understanding this through the intelligences, as opposed to just like, OK, I read Kindy or I read Resmore or I read. You know, sixteen, nineteen. I want people to to work with the charge, the embodiment of that. When you when you're sitting there and you're watching what they did to Sister Katanji Brown, when you're watching uh, Jackson, when you're watching that, there's something somatically happening if you're tied to creation, if you're connected, even tangentially to creation. When you watch what they were doing, right? And you know that that piece that they're doing has a very long history of uh, undermining the Black woman's body and undermining the intelligence under, you know, uh, the Black body as the boogeyman, like that piece older than the incorporation of this country. Mm -hmm. That's a charge that most white people are unwilling to contend with collectively. Mm -hmm. That's one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about this stuff, because I'm not trying to I'm not. I'm. I'm really trying to stand on, you know, Fannie Lou Hamer's shoulders. I'm trying to stand on Malcolm's shoulders. I'm trying to stand on on uh, Audrey Lord's shoulders. Right. I'm. I. Right. And so when I watch what they went through, and I watch, you know, them trying to usher in something, and the level of viciousness and feralness and brutality that they were met with, that's how I know that I'm on the right track because I'm experiencing some of the same stuff. I'm experiencing death threats. I'm experiencing, you know, people saying they know where my children are. People, you know, I mean, like all of this stuff is part of the winds, the the, the winds of, of white body supremacy pushing against me and pushing against my people. And so for me, that's why you hear some of the passion that I, that I come from, because this stuff is not cursory for me. It is central for me. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. It is central, and the the stakes are immensely high, and the intensity of the blowback, right, for somebody who does not know you, has not met your children, right, to threaten you without any sort of curiosity about what the hell is going on inside of me, that this man's ideas, words, perspective threatens me so deeply that my knee-jerk is to escalate it, right? Right.
1: That that and murder him and murder
0: him, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: For a while, I wasn't telling people that this was happening because this affects me, but it also affects the people that love me. So my team, who get all of these pieces, and, and they're the one that feel, and like half of, half the time, they don't even tell me, right? And them. You know, getting emails and this type of crazy stuff is in emails and they have to feel that. I finally had to start telling my team stop. If you open up an email and it starts off with murdering or something Aww. like that, delete the email. Most people who want me to come and do a talk are not going to start with the, my murder. Right. So, mm-hmm. so you don't have to feel those types of things anymore. And, and that's something that, you know, if somebody's writing a book on cooking sourdough don't have to deal with.
0: No. You know, so mm-hmm. yeah as a white body i i have the option of when i step in and when i don't step in right that is part of my advantage and this morning we you and i are having this conversation the morning after the oscars and so i was sharing a bit on instagram inviting and asking white bodies to just pause just to allow this to be something that others weigh in on that you don't need
1: to. to weigh in and, and gaze at uh,
0: right? uh. I was called a Nazi. Here we go. Here we go. I was told by four or five people that they were going to now unfollow me, right? And how could I? And this is, I thought you were about conversation and you are not, you know, so it was and that amount of blowback is an itty bitty fraction of a day in your life. And I tell you what, I felt it from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. I felt it. I felt so, and you know what I did? I did your orienting practice. You have to. You know, I, it was, I established my safety because I felt, I felt unsafe, you know, and it's a, and it's a little baby bitch. I know it, but it is a, it's, But
1: that's the, that's the charge, sibling. That's the charge, right? Most people have no, especially white bodies have no sense of the charge. They just, for you to have a boundary as a white body, and this is what I tell people, you know. When people come up to me and ask me, well, you know, talking about allyship, the first thing that I say is, how would I know that if you hadn't have told me? Mm. Allyship is a verb, it is not a place that you get to, right? When you tell me you're an ally, my first question is, who are the people that hold you accountable? Who are the people that you're raising babies with? Who are the people that you're developing a different cultural container with? Who are the people that you're ushering in and living embodied anti-racist culture with? Don't tell me that you march with Martin Luther King. Don't tell me that you like uh, black men or or indigenous. I don't want to hear that. Don't tell me you adopt somebody from South Korea. I don't want to hear that. What I want to know is... Are you developing with other white bodies a living, embodied, anti-racist culture? What you experienced was just a little bit of that, the lack of capacity in white bodies Mm -hmm. to contend with this, right? To contend with race. For you to just say a little boundary like, hey, y'all, this is not for us to comment on. That's not our, that we don't have no room to comment on that. How dare you? How, Mm -hmm. how? The white body is so used to having unfettered access to my body that any boundary uh, that you don't have unfettered access to it means that you're taking something from the white body. That's the configuration. Mm-hmm. That's how it gets right. Mm-hmm. That's, there's nothing for me in a black body to do with that. That's something for white bodies to begin to do with that. Right.
0: Oh, it's so freaking hard though, because everything is built around white bodies not having to, right? And so long as we're, so long as we're fighting about critical race theory in school, da, 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 all this stuff. As long as we're doing that, we aren't even at the home plate.
1: You're not even in the stadium. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Which is the function of it, right? The function of it is because once we get into the stadium,
1: now you got to build something. Now you have to actually do the work of getting the reps in. Once you're in the stadium. Now you can begin, now the heat, there's enough heat so things can begin to cook, right?
0: I'm looking at our time and I want to make sure that we <laughs> spend some time talking about your new, ba- your new baby, your new book that is, when this episode is out, it's going to be, it's, it's available for pre-order, it's going to be available where all of the books are sold. So talk to us about The Quaking of America, Oof. an embodied guide mm. to navigating our nation's upheaval and racial reckoning.
1: Yeah, so one one of the things you know that when you write a book, if the book is moderately successful, don't even have to be big success, right? That the first thing that publishers want to do want <laughs> you to do is write the same book again. What's
0: next? What's next? <laughs> yeah,
1: right, 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 and so the same thing happened with me. And so the original book that I started writing was going to be called Our Grandchildren's Souls. And it was going to be about legacy. How do you create legacy across time? How do you create a living embodied anti-racist cultural legacy? We got halfway through that book and then January 6th happened. Right.
0: Ah.
1: Right. And one of the things I know about this culture, we did the same. We do the same thing with everything. And and we did it with COVID. We, you know, and and that is large amounts of people want to go. We need to get back to normal. This mask is confining me in. Disrupting my rights, mm-hmm. so we got to go back to normal and we got to go mm-hmm. right. And so one of the things that happened for me when I was watching that is a piece welled up in me and I said, "This is such a seminal moment for America that I feel like America will do what it's always done, and that's take seminal moments and squander them as if they're nothing." A couple of days after I watched that, I called my agent. And I said, you know, you're going to be mad at me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Because we had a plan. (laughs) That's That's
1: right. He's like, well, what's going on? And I said, I can't finish writing this book. I said, I have to address January 6th in order to begin to put a structure and a frame together so people actually know what it was that happened and what they saw and what needs to happen. I said, white bodies in general will good and I'm talking about quote unquote the good white folks, right? Sure. The good white folks will see this and and be shocked and be in dismay. And then the next thing that they will do is move into collapse. Hmm. I say I, I've lost a lot of I'm saying this to you, I've lost a lot of white people who were friends, who I thought were friends, because the relationship between me and them started to become too extract. In that, whenever a black body would get murdered or something like January sixth happened, they were asking me, "Well, what do I think? What do I think should happen here? What do I think?" And and at one point, I got to uh, with a couple bodies, and I said, "You know, you've asked me this four times. You've asked me this four times. What makes you think that this is not wounding when you do this? You're supposed to be my home boy or my home girl, and you come to me with this." Wanting to have a conversation about something. Blowing up my, my phone saying, you, you know, when can we talk? But then after this was happening, you didn't go take a psychological first aid course. Yeah. You saw people up there with AR-15s and you didn't feel like you needed to go and take a weapons course. You didn't feel like you needed to go and take a uh, a first aid course. You didn't feel like you needed to get more uh, uh, and study with a group of other white folks, the, uh, the 1619 Project, you didn't feel like you should go and None of that happened. And you just allowed that moment to move on. You didn't take it seriously enough because you thought your whiteness would protect you when these fools who don't like you either start shooting. When they start shooting and your philosophy doesn't align with their philosophy, you will either align your philosophy with them or you will be murdered. Ugh. You didn't think it was that serious. So you didn't do, you didn't take it seriously enough to take a self-defense course or knowing how to get your reps up so you could pick up on what's in the environment when somebody's looking at you weird and stuff like that. You don't pick it up. You just keep moving along. And so for me, uh, the quaking of America was my attempt to help bodies start to get prepared for what I believe is a racial reckoning that's coming in. That's always, always been here. Listen, you had 70 million people vote for a guy the second time over 17 million. Not the first time. No. The second time. Yeah. Yeah,
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you
1: had more white women vote for this dude the second time.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. That is not about information. Like we always think, oh, you give people more information, more information. You
0: didn't, yeah, they didn't know, they we didn't know. When people,
1: yeah, yeah, they didn't. That's not about information. That's about mm-hmm. culture. That's about self interest. And you have tens of millions of people who align their self interest with that level of feralness, and you think they're playing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: This ain't real. And you think that because you're white, that that's going to protect you. Protect, sure. And it is not. And so that's what the quaking is about.
0: It is a wake-up call. It is saying this is part of what whiteness does, is it makes, it can even do something like take January 6th and say, that was weird, that was unfortunate, that was a one-off, that was over there. But the rest right. of uh And you're saying, right, we've got to see this as there's a thread that runs through this. There are themes here. There's amplification, and that's exactly right. And there's and there are things we can do. I mean, it is there not- things, that's
1: that's the whole thing. The whole book is about in preparation. If it jumps off, if you're prepared, you're able to work with it. If it doesn't jump off, you're prepared to work with. And this needs to be done anyway, right? And so for me, these pieces around like and one of the things that white bodies do Eli, is they move into hopelessness like that, right? Yeah, it's a collapse. It's another escape hatch, right? Okay, fine. Because what it would take to build, that means a lifetime commitment, right? And and what most white bodies want is tips. What most white bodies want are, tell me what to do,
0: yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah Especially
1: yeah. when it comes to race. And so the whole book is about how do you begin to prepare and work with these energies and this stuff that's coming? Because it's not going to stop. There's a reason why like like when we, when me and my wife were watching it, one of the things that happened is I'm sitting there and I go, well, oh, a thousand people showing up to this thing, okay, oh, a thousand people with a r fifteens and 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 battle fatigue or-, or uh, uh, you know all of the garb and everything, oh okay, oh shit, there's a noose there's a <laughs> there's a noose there's the symbol there oh shit, oh man, there's a Confederate flag. Whoa, shit, my goodness, there's a Nazi symbol. Wow. Now, if you just look at that and you just go, okay, well, that's weird. That's one way to look at it. But if you look at it and you go, ooh, those symbols always show up when bullshit is getting ready to happen. Wow. These things always show up. And then they started kicking out the windows. Then they started beating police officers with flags. The people who who they believe are the front line and everything. They beat 141 of them, mercilessly. Mer- they just beat them, right? That lets you know that their philosophy is about, is about not police. Their philosophy is about chaos. It is about the white body staying in the supreme position. This idea of not letting the time go past, at least for me in terms of writing the book, and not connecting those symbols and those pieces to a to a patterning as opposed to a one off is what the book was about.
0: Yeah. Oh, Resma. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I hate that you had to write the book, and I'm really freaking glad that you mm-hmm. have written the book. Mm-hmm. At the very same time, at the very same time, because it is it is a it is an offering and it is an education and it's a wake up. Yeah. Yeah. Aww. I appreciate your time so much. Y'all, there's going to be links in the show notes. I would love, you know, we always link to bookshop.org because that will support Mm -hmm. indie booksellers Mm -hmm. very often, Black-owned local booksellers. So
1: I have a whole thing on my website, and I'll make sure I send it to you of all of the Black-owned bookstores and stuff. Wonderful. And uh, and stuff. So I'll send that Wonderful. to you. Wonderful. Okay,
0: good. Yeah. Uh, and and you've got, I mean, your Instagram is really robust and you share. There's a lot of generous offerings on your Instagram feed. So I would love to send people there as well. Thank Anything you. else you want to make sure people know about? If they
1: want to take workshops or stuff with me, they can go to resma.com. I encourage everybody to do the um, the foundations course, uh, mm-hmm. a two-day course and then i also for my grandmother's hands i have a workbook a practice book that goes along with the book so go there check it out
0: wonderful thank you resma
1: thank you i appreciate it.
0: thank you resma for coming into this space and generously sharing your wisdom there's so much healing work to be done in our bodies in our communities and in the country at large, and we each play a role in actioning that healing. I hope that you take away new insights and hopefully some renewed energy to come together in community with others and envision a future that we can all be proud of. You will find links to Resma's website and his books, including his new book, The Quaking of America, in the show notes. Thank you for being here with me. Thank you for listening to our show. Our producer is Elizabeth Vogt. Our editors are Mary Chan and Danelle Cloutier of Organized Sound Productions. Our theme music was composed by Slade Warnkin. Reimagining Love is executive produced by me, Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Do you have a relationship question that you want to have answered on the show? Follow the link in the show notes of this episode to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. I can't wait to hear from you.